0: History Retold Podcast, Episode 121, The History of the Russian Orthodox Church, Part 2. The piece that you just listened to is another from a Russian Orthodox choir in Kiev. It is entitled, O God, Strengthen the Faith. Last time, we covered the history of the Russian Orthodox Church from its legendary beginning with the visit of the Apostle Andrew to the Time of Troubles. I want to admit a little bit of a mistake in the last episode, as I made mention that I did not go over the schism, as I would likely cover it separately. Actually, I'll be going it over in today's episode, as it had its start during the reign of Tsar Alexei, after the Time of Troubles. One of the things about this era that we're going to be discussing, it's known as the Patriarchate Era, and the Patriarch is the actual real head of the Church, and in Moscow, And most of Russia, all we had were metropolitans, and we had patriarchs who were Greek. They came from Constantinople, Jerusalem, and Antioch. Well, Russia wanted one of their own. And during this time, right before the time of Troubles, and I wanted to go back to that, to the time of the reign of the feeble-minded son of Ivan the Terrible, Tsar Fyodor I, who was under the guidance of Boris Gudenov who had a hand-picked patriarch in mind, a man named Job. With the Byzantine Empire falling apart, the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church was waning. They were running out of money, and the Russians had it. On top of that, the Catholic Jesuits were pressuring the Ukrainian people to convert to their brand of Christianity, pointing out that God must have abandoned the Greeks, by allowing the Muslim Turks to take over the former holy city of Constantinople. The Ukrainians at this time had distanced themselves from both Moscow and Constantinople, so they were a target for the Jesuits. This led to a lot of Orthodox Ukrainians to look towards Moscow for help. The problem was the lack of a patriarch. In 1586, news came that Patriarch Joachim of Antioch was coming to Russia. He lavished praise on Tsar Fyodor, writing, quote, If one should see and view heaven and the heaven of heavens and all the stars, but sees not the sun, he has seen nothing. At the present, the son of our Orthodox Christians is none other than yourself, your royal majesty. By June 17th, Patriarch Joachim. Kim arrived in Moscow, and the political maneuvering began. The metropolitan of Moscow was one Dionysi, and he was trying to position himself as the one to be selected as the first Russian patriarch. The mission of Joachim was to secure 8,000 pieces of gold for his cathedral in Antioch. Backroom negotiations commenced after his arrival between the royal family of Fyodor and the patriarch. They wanted only one thing from the Greeks for their financial support, and that was a patriarchate. Boris Godunov was nominated to conduct the negotiations, or more likely, he took control of them right away. He made it clear to Joachim that he would indeed give him the eight thousand pieces of gold, but it was with the full understanding that he would convince the patriarchs of Constantinople and Alexandria that Moscow would be given their due. After leaving Moscow, Joachim went on his way to confer with the others. The Greeks were not of the opinion that Moscow should be given a patriarchate, but they took advantage of the situation by sending emissaries to the Russian capital to ask for more money, which they desperately needed. In Moscow, Gudinov knew that he had to get rid of metropolitan Dionysius in order to get his hand-picked man elevated to the position of patriarch. He quickly did just that, as well as deposing Archbishop Volam of Krutitsk, of the political opponent of Gudunov. Dionysi was replaced by the Gudinov supporter Job. A new patriarch now had been installed by the Turkish Sultan Porta, Jeremiah II Trenos. Jeremiah was appalled at the devastated churches in Constantinople. The previous patriarch... Theoleptus had left the Greek Orthodox Church in ruins. They had no money, so they looked north at Moscow as their only hope. Jeremiah headed to Russia to beg for money. Understand that this is the kind of a pinnacle patriarch here, the one from Constantinople. Arriving in Moscow on july thirteenth, fifteen eighty eight, the Patriarch of Constantinople was given a royal welcome but it was very apparent to Jeremiah that all was not well. Everyone in his entourage was being watched and guarded 24 hours a day. No one was to talk to them without Gudenov's approval. Tense negotiations continued for days until an offer was made to Jeremiah to stay in Moscow as their patriarch. He accepted without thought, which is exactly what the Russians had hoped for. When the Greek patriarch found out what the terms of his staying were, he realized he had been duped. They had no intention of allowing him to stay in Moscow. Oh, instead they made it clear that his seat would be out there in Vladimir, far from Moscow, which would keep him out of any political influence. Pressure was put on Jeremiah to ordain a Russian patriarch. As hard as he tried, he could not resist as his homeland desperately needed Moscow's money. On January 26, 1589, Patriarch Job was ordained as the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russians were now freed of their reliance on the Greeks for their leadership. The Church was finally independent of foreign influence. The installation of Job was crucial for Boris Gudunov, as he was very aware of the frailty of Tsar Fyodor, he had his eyes set on the throne, and it came to him when Fyodor died on January seventh, fifteen ninety-eight. Quickly, Job set on with putting his friend on the seat of power in Moscow. By September third of that year, Boris Godunov was made Tsar, ordained by Patriarch Job. The new Tsar was aware that he came to power because of the Church, but he still had powerful enemies, with none more dangerous than the Romanov family. He exiled many of them as well as other powerful Boyar families. This led to his hatred by the Russian people, a hatred that was to lead to the disastrous time of troubles. Since Patriarch Job was tied so closely to Gudunov, he was almost killed by a mob, but was saved by the first false Dmitri and exiled to the Uspensky Monastery. One of the first orders of business of the first false Dmitri was to recall the head of the Romanov family, Fyodor Nikitich Romanov, now known as the monk Filaret. After the end of the time of troubles, this return of Filaret was to help with the ascension of his son, Michael, to the throne and to establish a 300-year dynasty for the Romanov family. During the battles with the second false Dmitri. The now-metropolitan Filorette was captured and brought to Tushino, where this new impostor had set up camp. Dmitri offered the position of patriarch to Filorette, which was not his to give, but Filorette, thinking things out, accepted. He was not able to take a seat as he was captured by the Poles and kept prisoner for eight years. In 1613, his son Michael was made Tsar, and he worked diligently to bring his father back to Moscow which he was successful in doing in 1619. Quickly, he saw to it that Metropolitan Filaret was ordained as the next Patriarch of Moscow and all of Russia. And this now Patriarch Filaret had a lot to do with the running of Russia, as his son was still young and not considered the sharpest uh, tool in the box, so to say. During Filaret's rule, he oversaw the creation of all sorts of books, manuals and other texts into the church Slavonic that was approved by him. Because of the damage done by the Poles when they occupied Moscow, few original works remained, so many had to be recreated from memory, which led to a lot of inconsistencies. These inconsistencies were the underlying reason for the upcoming schism. No one could agree as to what was the real Russian orthodoxy and which texts were erroneous due to errors in translation from the Greek texts. The man to create the controversy that caused the Great Schism was Nikita Minin, who became a monk after a very hard childhood, and he was renamed when he became a monk Nikon. As he moved up the ranks, he was named Metropolitan of Novgorod by now Tsar Alexei, a city that had not recovered from the devastation wrought on it by Ivan the Terrible in the year 1570. Nikon was a gift to the people as he spent a lot of time, money, and effort on charity and helping the people recover from their losses. During this time, he had many ecclesiastical discussions with the patriarch of Jerusalem, Pisus. He became convinced that the true word of God and all of the texts within the Russian Orthodox Church should be based on the Greek version, and that over the years, especially in the time of Patriarch Philaret, they had become bastardized. He ingratiated himself to Tsar Alexei so much that when Patriarch Joseph died in 1652, Nikon was the presumptive choice to take his place, which happened on July 22nd. At the time of his ascension, there was a law that sought to control the expansion and the influence of the church, known as the Monastery Ordinance. It was trying to stop the land grab of the church, which had already taken almost 30% of the land in Russia. A large number of boyars were growing increasingly annoyed at this, which they felt hurt their interests. Tsar Alexei was a proponent of the law, but he wasn't all in. Patriarch Nikon was excluded from the provisions of the law, and at his peak he had control of over 25,000 households, up from his predecessors 10,000. These amounted to church serfs, something that kind of boggles the modern mind, as one struggles to come to grips with a church, and ahead of a church that holds slaves. Nikon's power kept growing, as did his vanity. His vestments were incredibly decorated, some costing over thirty thousand gold rubles. Compare that to the average peasant who lived on less than a ruble a day, and you could see where this is headed. The patriarch did work hard at perfecting religious services and texts to mesh with the ancient Greek. Helping him was a scholar known as Arsenius of the Greek, a man who was later found out to not only claim orthodoxy as his religion, but he had converted to both Islam and Catholicism while being in those territories. And this would not bode well for Nikon in the future, although he could make enough trouble for himself. In 1653, a visit from the former Patriarch of Constantinople, Athanasius, influenced Nikon to reform the Russian church as he was shown how many differences between the Greek and Russian church existed. This motivated Nikon to make the necessary changes to bring his church in line with the Greeks. One of the first reforms was to change the way you held your hand when making the sign of the cross. At the time, most Russians only used two fingers, which Nikon changed to three to reflect the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, known as the Holy Trinity. Other changes to rites, such as how many times you bowed during a reading of a prayer, was put into writing. A circular letter was distributed in 1653 with all of the changes presented to the church leaders. Some of Nikon's old friends sort of freaked out, you might say. Men like Avakum Petrovich, Daniel of Kostroma, Logan of Murom, and Bishop Pavel of Kolomensk, believed that this was, quote, a declaration of war, on their way of orthodoxy. They declared that they were in deep opposition to the proposed changes and would not submit to Nikon's edict. This was something that the patriarch would not stand for. He began an inquisition to purge the ranks of any dissidents. What followed were years of increased power over the Church, akin to the power of the Pope in the Catholic Church of medieval times. He dared to put himself at the same level as the Tsar, which greatly disturbed Alexei. The Tsar finally put his foot down, and in a shocking development, Nikon resigned the Patriarchate. From his resignation on July 10, 1658, to his return nine years later in 1667, to be tried for his crimes, there was no Patriarch. In 1666, a church council was formed where they voted to uphold all of Nikon's changes and prosecute all the old believers. Some were banned, some excommunicated, and some put to death. There would be centuries of persecution on the old believers from this time on. Nikon was eventually exiled to Theropontov Monastery north of Moscow and placed in a cell with a guard only allowed in 1672 to leave his prison. By 1682, weakened by his years of incarceration, Patriarch Nikon died. His reign had indeed reformed the Russian Orthodox Church, but it created a schism that has never truly been healed. It would be appropriate this time to talk about the protopope, Archpriest Avakum, one of the most revered of the old believers and a writer of an extraordinary pieces of work. But I'm going to hold off on that, as I'll eventually be doing an entire podcast on his life to give him his historical due. In 1676, with the death of Tsar Alexei, we have the ascension of his son, Fyodor III, to the throne of Russia. Tsar Fyodor was a weak and sick young boy. Only lasted a few years. The patriarch at the time, Joachim, proceeded to strengthen the power of the church while looking at the weakness of the czar by having the monastery ordinance abolished. When Fyodor died childless in 1682, there were two potential heirs Ivan Alexeyevich, part of the Mil-Oslavsky family, who was fifteen but retarded, and Peter, whose mother was Alexei's second wife. Natalia Narshkina, The Streltsi, who were the royal guards, backed the Miloslavsky family and attacked the palace. They slaughtered members of Peter's family, something he did not forget when he came to power. The Streltsi were also old believers, something that would come into play when the young boy took control of the country and the church. The old believers were gathering steam at this time and tried intimidating the royal family and the newly appointed czar brothers, Ivan and Peter. They attempted to rebel against the church, but were brutally repressed under the leadership of Patriarch Joachim and the new regent, Sophia. Capital punishment and public whippings met the old believers all over Russia. Over the next eight years of his patriarchate, Joachim oversaw a relentless persecution of all dissenters, He died in April of 1690. In 1689, Peter came to power by ousting his sister Sophia and sending her to the Novodovici convent in Moscow. Nine years later, after an unsuccessful uprising again by the Strelsy, Sophia was again arrested and this time forced to take the veil and placed under guard, never to come out again. After Joachim's death, Bitter infighting occurred over who would succeed him, but because of his close relationship with Peter's mother, Natalia, Metropolitan Adrian was elevated to the position of Patriarch on August 27, 1690. He would be the last one until 1917. Peter soon began his westernization of Russia, which was vehemently opposed by Patriarch Adrian. He admonished people from shaving their beards saying, Do not associate with such people, and do not bless them when you meet them. Do not allow them to enter the church and deprive them of the sacraments until they cease from this and repent completely in tears, prayers, and a show of charity. After the death of Adrian's patron, Peter's mother Natalia, things began to sour between the Tsar and the Patriarch. At one meeting between the two, When Peter, wearing European-style clothing, something that made Adrian reprimand the czar, Peter admonished Adrian, saying, instead of worrying about clothing, worry instead about the affairs of the church. Pete did follow many church rites, because he could ill afford to lose their backing, as he was still only the co-czar with his brother Ivan. But that problem was solved with the death of his brother in 1696. In 1697 and 8, Peter headed off to his great embassy through Europe. He planned to stay away longer, but news came that the Streltsy were up to their old tricks again and threatened to mutiny. Tsar Peter had had enough of these old believers and decided to take care of them once and for all. Peter did not forget their murder of his uncle and members of his mother's family and friends. He had 1,800 members of the Royal Guard arrested and had 1,200 of them executed, many by decapitation and hanging. A number of old believer priests were also hung, many in front of the Cathedral of Basil, the Blessed, in Red Square. Patriarch Adrian approached the Tsar and begged him to pardon the mutineers, to which Peter replied, I do not honor God and his Immaculate Mother any less than you do, but my obligation is to execute criminals who have intentions of doing harm to society. While Peter was away on his great embassy, he had asked that Adrian force his first wife to take the veil, which he had not done. When asked why he had not carried out the Tsar's order, patriarch claimed that he had been intimidated by a number of priests in an Archimandrite. Peter had those men arrested and interrogated, but he spared the five men's lives. Yevdokia Lupkehina, Peter's wife, was eventually forced to take the veil and retire to the Pokrovsky convent in Suzdal. Peter was wise enough to use the church to his benefit when he asked the patriarch to bless him and his troops on his military campaigns. The czar knew he couldn't abandon the church, as his people were very close to their religion. In 1696, Adrian suffered a stroke, from which he recovered, but in a much weakened state. On October 16, 1700, Patriarch Adrian died after suffering from a second stroke. For all of the years since Vladimir I, the Russian Orthodox Church had control of the calendar. Peter was to change that, by decreeing that January 1st, 1700, would mark the beginning of the new year, not September 1st, which was Russian tradition. The old calendar had proclaimed that the year was 7207, but Peter followed the European calendar instead. This caused further weakening in the power of the Church over the state. For the next 20 years, Tsar Peter blocked the appointment of a new patriarch. He did appoint Metropolitan Stefan Yavorsky to be the interim patriarch, but that position was without the power of his predecessors. In 1718, Peter was informed that a plot to overthrow him and replace the Tsar with his son Alexei was brewing with the backing of many in the Russian Orthodox Church. Peter was furious, so many were arrested, tortured, and executed. His own son and heir was tortured to death. Peter now looked to find someone to help him reform the Church. The man he picked was Archbishop Theophan Prokopovich, a brilliant and well-read man. Prokopovich would develop the concept, quote, that the monarch no longer served the Church, but the Church served the monarch. This meant that a theocratic head of the Russian Orthodox Church would not do an ecclesiastical council was ordered to meet in February of 1720. He ordered those attending to agree with the reform that stated that the church was no longer to be guided by one man, but by a council, an all-holy synod. This new synod would compromise of a metropolitan to serve as president, two archbishops as vice presidents, four protopopes as assessors, three archimandrites as counselors, and a Greek monk to serve in an undefined position. By 1721, this edict became the law of the Church. All members of the clergy were made to swear the following, quote, I profess with an oath that the supreme judge of this religious college is the monarch of all Russia, our most merciful sovereign. This oath remained in place until it was removed by the Attorney General of the Holy Synod in 1901, the arch-conservative Konstantin One question arose as to the holdings of the church and whether or not the Synod would retain it. Peter agreed and transferred all of the property, including over one million serfs, to the control of the Holy Council. In 1722, Peter created the position of Attorney General of the Synod as the eyes and ears of the Tsar. Initially, only a figurehead, the position would become very powerful in the 19th century, as many would come from the ranks of the military. For the past 20 minutes or so, I've discussed many of the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now I'd like to to give you a little background about the everyday people. Now, According to data gathered in 1738, there are about 16,900 churches, 125,000 clergymen, 950 monasteries and convents, and about 17,000 monks and nuns. From what is known from loosely collected census numbers, we believe that there were about 13 million inhabitants of Russia in 1725. Estimates of actively practicing members, and this is surprising to me, of the Russian Orthodox religion in Russia, was really surprisingly low, at only about 10%. Because of Peter's prosecution of superstition, and what he believed were religious deceptions like weeping icons, many were moved away from the church. He also put down an edict that banned anyone from becoming a monk before they were 50 years of age, as Peter believed that the monasteries were a drain on the Russian economy. Because of his wanting to curtail the power of the church, Tsar brought back the monastery ordinance, which limited their growth and financial strength. But when Peter died in 1725, many of his constraints on monks, nuns, and the monasteries were eased. As for the old believers, many had moved away from the cities to the countryside, who continued following their beliefs. A number, estimated to between two and 20,000, committed suicide instead of bowing to the changes of the church. Stories of villagers burning themselves to death in their houses to protest attempts to force them to accept the official form of orthodoxy came from all over. Many of these people came to view Tsar Peter as the Antichrist. Peter's creation of the Holy Synod was not just condemned by the people of his time, but by scholars and historians in the future. As Bishop Nicodem wrote in 1874, The Russian Synod was invented by imperial authority, and so does not possess the dignity of a genuine ecclesiastical council. The sovereign, Peter the Great, created the Russian Synod based on his own thoughts and desires, and without counsel with religious authorities. He went on to say, Tsar Peter had no firm religious education, not only not orthodox, but none at all. He associated with whom he wanted. His popular friend and comrade was Lafort, a Swedish citizen with some education, a reformist, an ecstatic hater of Catholicism and the papacy. He, in all probability, armed Peter against Russian prelates, scaring him by identifying them with the Pope. In conclusion, Nicodem stated, quote, "Peter's idea of the synod." is a political ecclesiastical institution, parallel with every other state institution. And so it stood under the complete supreme despotic surveillance of the sovereign. The idea of a reform that can be affixed to orthodoxy is a false one. The church is its own ruler. Its head is Christ our God. The law is gospel. In religious matters, the sovereign is a son of the church. Regardless of what the church elders and the people of Russia thought, over the next 200 years, the Holy Synod would rule over the Russian Orthodox Church. Join me next time as I cover the synodal era that stretches from 1725 to 1894. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd like to thank those of you who donated to the podcast at the website www.russianrulershistory.com. As it really helps to defray the costs for the books and the hosting of this podcast. Please visit us on Facebook, where we've had a really lively discussion on the anniversary of the murder of the Romanov family at Russian Rulers History Podcast fan page. And there are two pages. And so there's been a little bit of a confusion about that. One, you'll see a lot of comment, and you just have to ask to join. And I approve it, you know, people all the time. Uh, While you're there, Ask a question, leave comments, or make suggestions. So now, as always, das is i